One of the things that we're doing is advancing a pretty significant study that looks at our road networks for our top 10 bus lines and really looking at those areas where we can collaborate to implement improvements that I believe will help both, will help all of vehicular traffic, but will definitely help transit improve the speed of operating buses. Welcome to Transit Unplugged. I'm Paul Comfort. Good to be with you on another edition of the world's leading transit executive podcast, Transit Unplugged in-depth this week with Matt Tucker, Executive Director and CEO of the North County Transit District, north of San Diego, California. They operate a multimodal service there with buses and commuter train and hybrid train. We talk all about the different modes, how commuter rail is recovering, how they're finding more passengers now on weekends riding, which we're seeing across the industry. We also talk about their efforts to diversify their power supply, looking at CNG, hydrogen, and battery electric and some upcoming grant applications they've submitted through the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act and what that can mean for their agency. All that on this episode of Transit Unplugged In-Depth. I'm Paul Comfort. Good to be with you on another edition of Transit Unplugged In-Depth this week with Matt Tucker, who's Executive Director and CEO of the North County Transit District in Southern California. Matt, thanks so much for being with us today on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, great to meet you. Matt and I were just talking. I don't think we've actually ever formally met until today. And so it's great to get to know you've got a big, important transit system there in Southern California. And uh, it's a, it's an honor to make your, your acquaintance, sir. Same here. Yeah. So uh, why don't you kick us off, Matt, by just telling us some about the service that you oversee there, you know, kind of the scope and the brand and those kind of things. So North County Transit District, we're located in the northern part of San Diego. So San Diego County has two transit agencies, San Diego MTS and North County Transit District. We're the agency that abuts Pendleton. We're one of the more unique transit agencies in the country. We are a medium-sized agency. We operate commuter rail, hybrid rail. We own and responsible for the maintenance of a railroad that hosts both freight inner city and passenger rail, Metrolink commuter rail. We also operate a bus system that's pretty comprehensive. It's about 165 bus system. Plus we do paratransit flex services and other types of uh, services that we're trying to morph into mobility as a service. Wow. That's awesome, man. That's quite an extensive multimodal service. Yes, it is. I mean, it's always interesting for me that when we go and benchmark our agency a lot of times, if you put all the modes in, you get some of the bigger transit agencies in the country. So we have to disaggregate to be able to capture the mode nuances for us and particularly population differences that obviously would be different for us. We're a community under a million people that spatially like spread all out versus a more dense area like you would see in New York, Philadelphia or any other place in the country with a major transit system. Yeah. So let's let's do that. Let's disaggregate your service a little bit and talk about each one, if you don't mind. Okay. Uh, let's talk about commuter rail. Tell me what you do there, you know, the size of the service and what you're experiencing now, because commuter rail across America is still very slow in recovering ridership from the pandemic. Has that been your experience? Tell us some about that. Yeah. So, you know, just in terms of our system, you know, we operate about seven train sets today. So that's the locomotive, Four, four cabs and four coaches and a cab. Okay, um, okay. We operate about 30 trips per, per day. Like most agencies in the commuter rail business, we've experienced the most profound impact in terms of loss of ridership. Obviously, it's pretty explainable because 
uh, the stay-at-home orders. What we have been experiencing is gradual uh, good recovery. It's very interesting in talking to my other partners in, in the industry, we both are seeing weekend service kind of lead the way in terms of recovery, yes. um, which is very interesting, but also just reflective of the intent and the desire of folks to get back out and socialize. We also kind of project forward and thinking that the weekday service will recover over time as we move farther and farther away from the impacts of COVID-19. For me, thinking about this fall is going to be kind of the first inflection point. Parents will have had the opportunity to plan for childcare and the plan return to office. Businesses maybe will not go back to a full five-day-a-week commute or expectation, but likely a three- to four day, and we'll see exactly what that means for us. I also look out on the longer term trajectory, thinking about the different business cycles that we've gone through and think, you know what, given the high fuel prices and other things that go on, we should continue to invest and be prepared for those customers coming back as a more normalized business cycle emerges. Does the train service serve San Diego or other urban areas? Where are you taking people to and from? Well, so we actually, we, we serve Northern San Diego to downtown San Diego. So that's our primary purpose. We do have Amtrak, which provides direct connections along the entire Low San Quarter, which is San Diego to San Luis Obispo. And that operates about uh, one train about every hour in a normal circumstance. Plus, we have a connection with Metrolink, our partner. They provide service to our most southern station in Oceanside. So okay, comprehensive yeah. different options for people to take commuter rail trains and connect between San Diego and LA and points north of that. Gotcha. Yeah, we had Darren on earlier this year from Metrolink. So yeah. So we're recording this in July when it's going to air. What what are you all experiencing in the San Diego area, would you say, when it comes to people going back into the downtown areas for work. I've been talking to folks in New York City and Baltimore and Washington, Chicago, other places. And, um, you know, ridership on regular transit is 60 to 70%. Ridership on commuter rail is still 30 to 40%. And the downtown areas still really have to fill back up of workers. The traffic is back, it seems like. The cars have come back, but they're still on this hybrid work schedule, like you mentioned, where maybe Tuesday through Thursday are the biggest days of the week, those kind of things where people are going downtown. Town. What are you experiencing there in San Diego, would you say? Pretty much mirroring mirroring that impact. But you know, okay. what was interesting, Paul, but pre-COVID, we were already doing a lot of analysis. And that analysis had already kind of identified kind of changes in the commute pattern. I, I think most of us who were, you know, starting in the industry 20-something years ago, we were always focused in around that peak period, maybe six to eight and right. maybe five to seven. Well, we could see pre-COVID, kind of that it was spreading out longer and longer. You can see it even in traffic today that you can see peak periods that didn't exist before. My assumption is, again, is that, you know, when I watch a lot, I, I consume a lot of business of news and, and, and information. And, you know, one of the trends that I see a lot in terms of CEO speak is their desire to return their people back to the office environment. Yes. And I know there's a whole lot of debate about, you know, the ability to actually do it. Now is particularly a difficult time because of the shortfall and the availability of staffing and retention issues. But when you hear some of the, you know, the major players within Wall Street, banking industry and other industries 
repeatedly talk about company culture and the need to have enhanced collaboration and that it can only be accomplished by people returning back to the office. My sense is, again, we're talking about kind of what is the next business cycle away from seeing more and more people return back to the office. I think you're right. Tell us about some of your other services that you run. One of the things I do love to talk about is our bus system, because our bus system carries about 69% of our ridership. And we are really interested in, in, in upgrading our bus system to zero emissions technology, as well as comprehensive improvements to really improve the customer riding experience. So from the zero emissions vehicle, we are making significant advancements in terms of implementation of battery electric buses and hydrogen buses. We have facilities being constructed to support both. Right now, we are waiting the delivery of six battery electric buses, eight hydrogen buses, but we submitted a NOLO grant for 42 hydrogen buses. And so that shows kind of our commitment and intent. Right now, hydrogen buses meet uh, our operating requirements of 300 miles without fueling, which is an important consideration in yes. terms of making that transition. But that is just one element. The bigger element that we're really focused on is improving the speed and reliability to make it more competitive as we look at an overlay with mobility as a service in the future. So one of the things that we're doing is advancing a pretty significant study that looks at our road networks for our top 10 bus lines and really looking at those areas where we can collaborate with the county, local communities, and with the state to implement improvements that I believe will help both, will help all of vehicular traffic, but will definitely help transit improve the speed of operating buses. We think it's critical that we really focus in on reducing the number of bus stops over time so that we can speed up the travel time from point A to point B, fill in those areas of connections with mobility as a service, and offer people the ability to take mobility as a service combined with buses dependent upon the nature of their trip. Obviously, the longer trip, stay on the bus, and we'll have limited stop and get you there quicker versus the shorter trip that if we can accommodate that in a way and a price point that allows you to complete that trip quicker, that's obviously going to make more and more people choose a transit option. So we're really connecting our bus system and our paratransit system, non-ADA, in a way that we think in the future years will be much more responsive to the community's expectations, particularly around school bus um, transportation, connecting kids to schools, to jobs, grocery stores, short distance trips in a way that we can't do it today. That's interesting. When you mentioned hydrogen fuel, you made me think about a Sunline Transit and my friend Lauren Skyver. Just before the pandemic, I was visiting San Diego, I think for the APTA BMBG conference or something, and we visited her and I got to tour that plant. Do you connect with her at all and her agency? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I know her personally. I yeah. work with her well through APTA. And um, I mean, they have been kind of a leader as as AC Transit and these technologies. In fact, I mean, as you say that we should have met each other when when you were, because I, I was also at that BG conference oh, yeah. in La Costa. But yeah, I mean, and this is one of those things where the industry, we have to collaborate and and share lessons learned around implementation of these zero emissions technology. Yes. It's one of the key things that will prevent us from making the same mistake more than once. 
I'm hearing from a lot of CEOs. I just was speaking in Delaware at their transit agency, and then I was just up in Baltimore at my old alma mater last week speaking there. And I'm hearing from a lot of agencies saying that they don't want to put basically all their eggs in one basket when it comes to fueling, and they'd like to explore you know, battery electric. Some of them have CNG plants nearby, and so they're doing compressed natural gas. Others are exploring hydrogen. What's your thoughts on that, Matt, on the, on the overall you know, fleet portfolio? Right. So obviously, so for us right now, almost all of our fleet is CNG. In fact, we have a few legacy diesel buses, I think it's six, that are going to be exchanged as part of the battery buses coming in. Moving forward in the future, it's one of my primary concerns about diversity and operations. That's why we hope battery technology significantly improves its performance. You know, right now, from a battery point of view, you know, all of the data tells us that those buses are able to stay in revenue service about 120 to 150 miles without requiring a recharge. We're hopeful that we can have both a mix of battery buses and hydrogen buses. I do worry about lot from lots of different perspectives about the reliance upon one technology, especially here in California. You know, if the grid were to go down and your buses are all battery electric, what the heck do you do? You know, the whole production process for hydrogen is such that, yes, you're going to be also right now still dependent upon power to, to produce it. So we are very much focused in on making sure that we go through this initial phases and see how both technologies perform. But the best outcome from us is going to be able to have a diversity of outcomes in terms of technology implementation. And then working through trying to make sure that we have better control over the future purchases of energy or or hydrogen to make sure we know exactly what those price points are going to be, if we can normalize it more so towards the benchmark of what we spend for CNG on a per therm basis, it's going to be very much critical to us that we that we think it through. Because right now, all transit agencies that are jumping into this are jumping into this with an unknown commitment about the increased operating costs or the funding for the increased operating costs that are going to be needed to support the operations of these vehicles. Talk to me about your Sprinter hybrid rail. What is that? Yeah, so we were one of the leaders. It's a perfect blend between a traditional, you know, locomotive and, and, and bi-level cab or single level and what you see in a traditional light rail vehicle. Our vehicles all came from Europe. They were approved on a Buy America non-availability waiver. Manufactured by Siemens, we have approximately 12 of those vehicles. And that service is one of our more productive services pre-COVID. It runs through the heart of our major inland communities, very much successful in terms of meeting the needs of major educational institutions that are along that line. It's also been instrumental, I believe, in some of the development of those cities in terms of a lot of development has occurred around those stations. And and the does it run like a light rail system? I'm not it, real it, familiar with it. Yeah, so, <laughs> so it runs... A, like a quasi-rail, light rail system. Okay. It, it, it actually operates under federal railroad administration waivers. So temporal separation. So the rail line supports freight in the evenings. Okay. Uh, and then during the daytime period up to midnight when we operate, no freight operates. And so it's a perfect blend. Now for us going in the future, we've already started planning towards zero emissions rail. And the future conversion of that line 
to FRA jurisdiction, which means that that vehicle that we have today won't be the vehicle that we have in the future. The vehicle that we have today can't operate on the same tracks as our coastal line okay. because okay. it doesn't meet FRA requirements. And so we're looking at trying to create more one-seat rides in the future. And so the future of that line will be converted to a fully Federal Railroad Administration compliant vehicle that would allow you to go anywhere north, south, east, west on a singular vehicle. You cover a big service area of over a thousand miles. Tell us a little bit about your flex on demand and your Lyft ADA paratransit services in that area. It's very interesting because of what you just said in terms of the vast nature of our service area. And you compare that to San Francisco Munich, I think I'm, I, I have it correct. They're about 44 to 48 square miles. And you're talking about having like a very target rich transit environment is when you have that much compaction, you know, and a population plus pre-COVID, you know, with people coming into the city to get to work, very, very, very much supportive. The more things are spread out, you have to really kind of create services that are more reflective of the needs of the community. The flex service was something that we created well ahead of the emergence of Uber and types of services where we were looking at where we had certain routes that were in rural areas or routes that were always going to be low performing relative to use of a 40-foot bus on a 15-minute schedule. And so that's where we have implemented our flex service. As we look towards the future with new and emerging technologies, like, so we're right now in the process of procuring an app for our microtransit service. So we're looking at flex emerging. We're looking at flex and how we can integrate flex with our paratransit service. Obviously, the nuances between the ADA paratransit services versus mobility service or microtransit, but to the degree that we can give customers more choice and flexibility and use of the system, I think it's better. It offers us opportunity to have certain levels of efficiency. It offers us the opportunity too, given the approach that we're taking in terms of management of our human resources, that an operator can do both paratransit ADA, microtransit, and we're moving towards that same operator being able to do fixed route bus. And we're looking at these as an integrated approach combined with improving frequencies on our rail system to really give customers a seamless integrated riding experience that's kind of reflective of our community. And our community, you know, our community is not singular because, you know, we have to think about the entire Southern California basin. Our rail line connects people in ways that the buses don't. So we have to think about how all of those connections can allow people for the mobility and connections, even into major metropolitan areas like downtown San Diego or LA. Do you contract out the paratransit and the the flex service? We do. We contract out the the fit through bus system, the paratransit service and the flex service. Very interested on the rail service. It has always been contracted out, but last year our board approved us in-sourcing bus. I mean, rail, pardon me. Rail, okay. And, and so we just completed the first phase of in-sourcing rail operations, which was our maintenance of equipment for both the Sprinter and the Coaster and train operations. So train conductors, train engineers, train operators, and train attendants. And we're looking next year to insource maintenance away, maintenance of signal and facilities maintenance. So it's very interesting as going through that transition, watching kind of the uh, uh, clear changes that we can see in terms of 
making that adjustment from outsource to insource. Who contract? Who do you contract with for the uh, for the bus services? It's MV Transit. So let's tell us some about the agency itself, Matt. North County Transit District is that. Tell us some about how that's structured. Yeah, so we are a special district created, obviously, by, by the state. We have approximately 10 board members, nine of which are voting members. And then we have an ex-officio non-member, a voting member from the city of San Diego. Very interesting. That happened a few a couple of years ago. Our operating budget for this is about $170 million. We are advancing a bunch of significant initiatives um, to really enhance our system over the next few years. So you're going to see from us lots of significant studies. We have a, a major study going on with Deloitte, focusing in on understanding the market space post-COVID-19 plus other considerations. We have quite a few grant applications in looking to add double tracking projects on our railroad. Our goal is on our hybrid rail line to move from a 30-minute frequency to a 15-minute frequency or a 10-minute frequency, potentially over time. On our commuter rail line, we just moved from 22 trains per day to 30 trains per day, and we're looking to potentially go up to 36 and up to 42 trains per day. From an organizational point of view, up until we just insourced these, some of those employees from rail, we were about 150 employees, direct employees, excluding contracted. That shifted another 100 employees directly to us on the contracted side. There's about 600 plus employees out there performing a variety of different functions for, for the district. What are your primary funding sources there? Well, our primary funding source is a combination of federal, state, and local funding. Obviously, the federal is really focusing on capital projects and preventative maintenance activities. The state and local dollars really provide us the lifeblood that we need to support our operating costs. Do you Are you charging fair? Do you get a good fair box recovery ratio? Well, we're going through one of those very interesting phases right now. Like many communities, and I'm sure in many of your interviews, Lots of discussion around free fares. Yes. We have a pilot, I believe it's a 14 to 16 month pilot for youth that is happening today. Pre-COVID, our commuter rail system, coastal commuter rail system, provided the largest chunk of revenue to the district and subsidized other aspects of of our operations. Pre-COVID, we were about a 16% fare box recovery ratio. You know, it's, it's an interesting thing because being in the industry so long and seeing that as one of the more major indicators of performance, watching my own kind of e evolution on has been interesting because particularly for us, and I know you've been in the business and, and, and across all of the different modes, but watching from a public policy perspective of us, for example, implementing positive train control, which adds six to seven million costs per on an annual basis, it's tough to ever recover that when that system is purely a safety system right. that will add, you know, no new riders to the system. So it's a very interesting process that I think all transit agencies are going through in terms of the public policy discussions around fare box recovery. So tell us something about yourself, Matt. Uh, you've been there for a while. Tell us about your career and how long you've been there and those kind of things. Okay. So I, I've been here in this job 14 years, which now makes me feel like one of the longer serving CEOs anywhere in the country. Yeah, anywhere in the country. That's amazing, Matt. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. You know, I, I think, Paul, before we even start, we started the recording for this, you and I shared kind of our start in Virginia. Um, yes. Both of us are preacher kids. 
I grew up in rural Virginia, where obviously there was no public transportation other than your feet. Uh, <laughs> I went to school in Richmond, Virginia. I got okay. started transit company, which for many of your listeners, may, some of them would know Richmond used to be a training site for ATE rider transportation. So it, that was within the context of I was hired as an intern beginning in finance. Then I became customer service manager, then director of planning and left there as assistant general manager. And it was a really great experience coming into a system where you had to be involved in all aspects of the operation. From there, I went to the city of Phoenix. I was deputy public transit director in the city of Phoenix for a very short period of time before I made a jump to Santa Clara Valley Transportation Authority, where I was initially hired as director of transportation for the bus and light rail system there, then promoted to director of transportation and maintenance, and following that, promoted to chief operating officer. So I stayed there for approximately six years, and then I went back to Virginia to run the Virginia Department of Rail and Public Transportation during the time that Senator Kane was the governor of Virginia. In that role, I was responsible for comprehensive statewide transportation demand management, public transportation funding, management of public-private transportation agreements that were associated with implementation of rail projects that supported passenger rail improvements, as well as improved freight operations that grew jobs for the Commonwealth of Virginia. Stayed there approximately three years before coming out to this job. Um, and okay. so, it's, so I had it pretty well-rounded experience, been able to work on some significant um, capital projects. The Dulles Rail Project was one of the projects that I worked on in Virginia. And during my time at uh, VTA, quite a few light rail projects were coming, being constructed or came online. That's a great career background, Matt. You've, like you said, you've, you've done a little bit of everything that really prepares you for, for the top position there. That's amazing. So what's next for the, uh, the agency there as we wrap up our interview today? You mentioned you've got some studies coming out. What do you see happening over the next 12 to 18 months there at North County Transit District? Well, I think for us, we're, we're now, you know, given the amazing potential of the bipartisan infrastructure deal, you know, we're going to be waiting with bated breath to see the results of a significant number of grant applications that we've submitted. Okay. Uh, if those grant applications are approved, we're going to be able to move really quickly across all fronts in terms of advancing improvements to our bus system with the aggressive purchase of, of hydrogen buses, of 42 buses, advancements on our capital program in terms of our rail improvements to be able to significantly increase frequency improvements, and then rolling out our microtransit service. Those are some of the key things that we're focusing in on. Obviously, one of the key things that we're going to keep focus on is understanding the changes within the market space in terms of commute patterns, business patterns. Obviously, like most people, we also are thinking like in the middle of all of this robust activity, what happens in the event of a slowdown in the economy and looking at those types of activities from a contingency planning point of view to be prepared if we have to quickly pivot. So we're excited about the future. We're excited about the opportunities before us. At the same time, we want to make sure we're prepared for all circumstances that pop up. 
That's a great position to be in. Hey, make sure to keep us apprised of, of how you're doing there. We'd like to stay in touch. Also, our friend Marcelo Bravo, I know he stays in contact with you as well. So thanks so much for being our guest today, Matt, on Transit Unplugged. You've got a lot going on, a lot on the plate. We wish you very much success in the future. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to do this. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Transit Unplugged In-Depth with our guest, Matt Tucker, CEO of North County Transit District. And next week on Transit Unplugged News and Views, we have April Ray, CEO of Comto, Conference of Minority Transit Officials. And don't forget, it's still award season. We'd love your support at the podcast awards in the government and organizations category. Please go over to podcastawards.com and drop a vote for us. Maybe even say Paul is your greatest podcast influencer. And don't forget, sign up for our newsletter at transitunplugged.com. That way you stay in the loop with everything that's going on with the show. If you have a question, comment, or would like to be a guest on Transit Unplugged, feel free to email us at info at transitunplugged.com. So until next week, ride safe and ride happy.